Welcome to Relationship University. My name is Natalie Bloom, therapist and counselor specializing in young professionals. Each episode, you'll hear uncommon conversations with real people and take away psychological insights and tools to strengthen your relationship to dating, friendships, partners, and work. But most importantly, improving the relationship you have to yourself. Thanks so much for joining me and let's get it started. How do we encourage inner growth and development? What is our shadow side and how do we work with it? Also, what are some tools for overcoming addiction and how do we learn to make better life choices? In today's episode, I'll be talking to my friend and colleague, Benjamin Russick. He will discuss his experience as a once self-identified social outcast struggling with depression turned marriage and family therapist and Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. We'll hear the story of how he outgrew his social inhibitions, lost 100 pounds, and ultimately reclaimed his life. And our guest of honor is Ben. He's a licensed marriage and family therapist who lives and works in San Francisco, California. He spends most of his time writing novels, practicing jujitsu, and figuring out what he's going to make for dinner. Enjoy the show. I really hope you love listening and learning from the podcast, and the podcast is not meant to be actual therapy or a substitute for a relationship with a mental health provider. What are we talking about again today? I forget. We're talking about you. Oh, okay. (laughs) You had something specific in mind. What was it? Um, Your greatness. My greatness. Okay. I can go with that. We're going to talk about how you've overcome adversity, created a lot of resilience in your life. And I refer to you for help with a lot of different things. I've also had clients email me. I don't know if I shared this with you, but email me and say, Ben's great. Like I'm doing so much better. Ben changed my life. So thank you for the referral of Ben, who's an addiction specialist. And I'll tell you from personal experience that not very many people can work with addicts, people who struggle with addiction. That's really hard. Um, And you have to be really talented and a certain kind of person to do that. Um, Ben's also a black belt in jujitsu, which not everyone can do that either. So I'm curious here, like how, how does this happen? And how did you grow into the man that you are today? (laughs) Well, I was raised by parents who were good people and meant well, but were very consumed with their own issues. They'd fight a lot. And I think my mom, she had a lot of agoraphobic kind of tendencies, afraid to leave the house. You know, um, my dad was checked out. He was kind of narcissistic and a lot of navel gazing and spent a lot of time in his study. And I just wasn't very, I wasn't a socialized person, if that makes any sense. I didn't know how to talk to my peers. I didn't know how to function. I'm not blaming my parents because they had their own issues. Um, I think that Carl Jung said that we all, everyone inherits the shadowy, the unprocessed parts of your parents' personalities. So, you know, like a child who doesn't learn table manners, let's say your parents don't have table manners, right? It's not like there's some little thing in you that flips because you you weren't exposed to table manners. It's you literally never learned. You didn't know they exist. You didn't know there was such a thing. <laughs> and so that analogy can be used for many things. What kind of body language you should have around people, how you should approach 
people, how you should start conversations, how you should end them, how you should make friends, how you set boundaries, how you conduct yourself, you know, in a classroom, <laughs> you know, those types of things. I didn't learn any of that. And um, I didn't have any social skills and I was also fairly overweight. And so when you're an obnoxious, you know, overweight child, you're the object of a lot of scorn amongst your peers and also your parents and your teachers and are all coming down on you for being overweight and you're eating too much and you're gonna, your father who's a doctor says you're going to die of heart disease by the time you're 25. That's a quote. And um, I'm not saying my parents are bad people. I'm not saying anyone was a bad person. Um, there's that book um, by Mark Manson called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, which is a terrible title, but it's basically regurgitated Buddhism, which talks about how we have to not blame people or anyone for our issues, but to take responsibility for what has occurred to us. So for instance, if you were in a car accident and you were hit by a drunk driver and you suffered some severe bodily injuries, it's your responsibility to fix your body. It's not necessarily you're going to blame the, the driver. I mean, you can do that all you want, but that's not going to help you. You have to fix what was broken. Um, and everybody gets broken by everybody else. My parents are broken by their parents and so on for a million generations back. So it's nobody's fault. I blame nobody. They, you know, they were really good people and they had a lot of, they came from much harder backgrounds than I did, both of them. Like it's, it's the damn truth. And so they did, I think they, every, I think everybody does the best they can with what they have. That's the first thing I want to say. Everyone does the best they can, even if they're a drug addict, the drug addict does the best he or she can. They're trying to heal themselves, but by taking drugs, right? Um, and they're they're twenty four seven trying to improve themselves. They're just doing it in a kind of a questionable way. So anyway, that's that was sort of me as a child. So I didn't have any social skills. I didn't have anything. I was just a, I was just a mess. And I was um, looking through some old pictures of myself from eighth grade. And my God, I was just so out of it. Even in you know even in college, I was just so out of it. But what happened was, as I found uh, or my father, uh, one of the good things he did for me was he found me a fantastic therapist, Seymour who was my therapist from age 15 until um, about five years ago, six years ago. So a very long time, almost 30 years. And he turned me around. Um, he kind of taught me all the things I needed to learn, how to talk to people, you know, how to stop being you know, a fool, how to lose weight. Really, he, you know, I, I lost 100 pounds working with him. He just sort of had that fatherly, cowboyish, masculine energy that I needed so desperately. So what did I do? I mean, I... Trial and error, you know. <laughs> I'm just now at the age of 46, really coming into my own socially, learning how to really talk to people and really, you know, comport myself. Like I, I realized, for instance, a year ago that if I just shut up when I'm in a new situation, if I just shut up for 20 minutes and listen very carefully to everybody in the room and kind of figure out what kind of people I was with and what the energy level was and wait for the perfect opportunity to say something not obnoxious. It's it's kind of a really good way to enter into a group of new people who are like, who is this guy? So that's like a thing that I learned recently in my 40s. And that's mm -hmm. the kind of thing I think most people know when they're teenagers. And it's something that a lot of people never know. Yeah, yeah. The rub of it is that I've always known there was a big problem with me and that it was my job to fix it. That's what I've known. That's what I've carried with me since I was five years old. Like I knew something wasn't right. And I knew that it was my fault that I was not doing things correctly with people. I was not behaving in the right way. I was not taking care of my body in the right way. I was not eating the right things. I was not, I was not doing well. Mm -hmm. And so it, part of my life's work has been looking for ways to improve myself all the time. And um, I don't personally believe in the axiom 
that people stop growing at age 20, 21. They say socially, they kind of stop developmentally. I think that's true because people let go. But if you don't let go, if you keep looking to transform and grow yourself, you will keep changing. And I absolutely believe that. So every day I'm always, how can I make this day better than the other the, yesterday? How can I, what book can I read? Can I do some writing? Can I watch a documentary? You know, you know they, they talk about the goal-driven life. Like I'm always striving towards something, whether it's jujitsu. I mean, jujitsu was a, was a hugely transformative experience. The thing about jujitsu that people have to understand is that it's, it's not like you're doing a, a kata or you're doing a, a dance or you're like punching the air. You're like attacking people and getting attacked. You're getting thrown on the ground violently and choked and you're having, you know, your arms are almost ripped off. People are trying to break your legs. It's real. And that changes a man. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I've been doing that for 15 years. And also what happens is that also you form, you get an instant family, you get a community people around you. And that really helped me socialize me a little bit. And then getting my MFT, of course, was helpful. I do a lot of writing and that's really helpful. I've been trying to grow my social, my friend group for the last few years, much more than before. Uh, and I, I, one thing I figured out in my 40s was that if you put more energy into your close friendships, you will end up with more friends because mm-hmm. you will form stronger bonds with them. You will meet their friends. Their friends will get to know you. They'll like you. And you kind of grow it organically that way. So instead of trying to like play the numbers game where I meet as many people as possible, which is just ridiculous, I do the opposite. I meet as few people as possible. But like, you know, you and I are, are good friends, I would say. You know, I enjoy your company and I, I you know, when we talk, I, I pour as much energy into you as I can because I think you're astonishing and fabulous. Thank you. Well, it's very mutual. And when, when you say small group, you've connected me with several close colleagues of people that I adore and they've also changed my life too. I'm wondering about what would be a pivotal moment around the time where you first discovered jujitsu? What was it in you? Kind of what was happening and what was the story of you deciding, I'm going to go try something new. I'm going to go do something that's different than well, I've done before. I don't ever do that because I don't like change. I have to be dragged to. Okay. So you were dragged. Tell me the story dragged. about the dragging. Oh, this is what happened. So through some strange accident of fate, I ended up with a girlfriend in college who um, summarily dumped me after three years, which was a smart thing. I applaud her decision because I was a terrible boyfriend for multiple reasons that I'm not going to get into. Um, can we can we rewind? Yeah. I appreciate your the maybe attempt of self-deprecation, but what would be like a narrative that would be a more confident and accurate narrative. This, this particular relationship was really toxic and I didn't treat her with enough respect and I, I took her for granted. Uh, I didn't cheat on her or anything, but I just took her for granted and she was a really special human being and she deserved, she honest. I mean, I was, I was 23, you know, I was like, or 24 years old. I was young and didn't know anything. I don't feel so badly about being self-deprecating because I felt, I feel that at that age I was a mess. I mean, she, you know, we were young anyway. And I hear what you're saying though. So I, I'll be less self-deprecating. Why do you think she was into you? Well, I mean, I think I, I think women who really like the nice guy like me, and there's not a lot of women who don't like that. Um, there's a lot of women who don't like the nice guy. Yeah. Who don't like the nice guy because it's too, it's seen as too beta. It's seen as, you know, weak. Um, or it's who knows there's some trauma thing going on, but that's, that's my experience is that a lot of women have told me this, that like, yeah, I don't, I don't like nice men. <laughs> it's like, it's so, it's so terrible. But so I think that's part of it. Cause I was just basically a, it was a, it was a nice person. Um, I'm not an idiot and I think she liked that. Um, and I had a lot of goals and I think she liked that. So I don't know. 
just kind of happened. She was a good human though. She really was. Yeah. I think the nice guy and the bad boy, or what, I don't know what would be the alternative to nice guy. Yeah. What happens is, is that I think of a lot of women confuse kindness with subordinates or they confuse bad behavior with dominance. And I think a lot of women are attracted to dominant men, but they're actually assholes and really mean people. That's just how I see it. So that there's, I think there's a lot of confusion in the culture about what a good person is. A man can be really nice, but really strong. And a lot of times a man is really nice and a woman will take a look at him and go, oh, he's, he, he wants me too much. He must be worthless. <laughs> mm. It's sort of like one of the reasons that gold is valuable. It's rare. And so if a man, if a man wants me, he must be too available. He must, his value, his value, his perceived value drops. Mm-hmm. Right? Sure which is enormous, a huge mistake. And it goes the other direction too. Men, I think men, a lot of men like quote unquote angry or mean or, or bitchy women, whatever, however you want to say that because they, they, they seem to like, so it, go, it cuts both directions. Um, and I think the culture has trained itself into some terrible habits about what attraction is and who is attracted to whom and why. I don't know if that answers your question, but. Yeah, there's some evolution that our culture can have about men coming into their masculinity and focusing on themselves and their life and being a good person, like being strong and being nice Mm -hmm. and being rare, Mm -hmm. but available, like those things can go together. Yeah, it's just that we're too simplistic. We're we're, we're a very black and white thinking culture. The, The easiest mark of weakness is kindness. It's, it's the easiest way to find it. And it's often true, which is unfortunate. Oftentimes, really kind people get run over by the world. It's a true thing. It's not always true, but it's often true. And it's true often enough that enough people see it and go, yeah, that's not for me. You're not going to be able to protect me, or you're not going to be able to protect yourself, or you're not going to be worth anything. You're not going to be able to kill it out there in the world. You're not going to be able to survive in the jungle. Do you think that that's just for men or for women as well? I think it's primarily for women, but I think men have that too as well. But I think it's primarily a feminine to masculine perception for sure. That women think that nice guys. Well, I want to, I want to qualify that because I want to say the feminine perceives the masculine. So you, mm-hmm. so women have a predominance of the feminine, men have a predominance of the masculine, mm-hmm. but feminine when not properly developed uh, will perceive kindness as weakness. Mm. And that is not women, it's the feminine. The masculine mm-hmm. also does really stupid things too. They're just different stupid things. The masculine and the feminine are both, in, both have their relative levels of insanity. They're just different, insane in different ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, the, the insanity of the masculine revolves around, around um, the idea that what you can have is never worth having. Mm. That the unattainable is the only thing that you should ever want to attain. And that's why, you know, men will oftentimes jump from woman to woman to woman looking for the perfect girl, because as soon as they have a woman, they're like, well, you're not the perfect girl. You're just a human being. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the insanity of the masculine. So how, do, how does the masculine and feminine evolve to become more sane? Well, you have to grow as a human being. As you grow as a human being, everything within you evolves. You have to find the areas of your personality that are in shadow, that are basically the disabused parts of your personality that you don't want to deal with. Um, For me, it's connection with people. That's one of my biggest shadow aspects. I I don't do well with connection to people. My extroverted feeling function is shot. 
I grow a lot when I go out there in the world and try to meet people and try to make connections. And it, it grows me because it's so difficult. You know, they always say that, you know, you grow as a person when you do the thing that you're afraid of doing. Mm. That's true. But the trick is how do you find the, the appropriate thing to step into that you're afraid of? So there's plenty of things I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of hand gliding. I'm afraid of hunting wild boar. Um, I'm afraid of, you know, these are the things I'm afraid of, but I don't think I would grow as a person if I went and hunted a wild boar. I mean, I might have a good time. In fact, I'm probably going to do it next year, but that's another story. You've got to face the right kind of fears. You've got to face the right kind of things that are not developed in your personality. And that's not always easy to find. And it takes some work to find where that is and what that is. So for people listening who aren't familiar with the shadow side, what that means and how they can use that to help them identify their growth area? Like how would you define it? So the shadow side is the disabused part of your personality, the part of you that yourself that's been cut off because you, it, it is literally not in the light. Not literally, but I hate that use of that word, but <laughs> it's not in the light. And it can also be a good part of yourself. So if you want to do a shadow exercise, you can do what's called the golden shadow, which is the parts of yourself that you actually love. And what you do is you think of someone you admire. Like, who do you admire in the world? Let's see. I'll pick someone who I admired that I knew in high school, a friend of mine from high school. Okay. What do you admire about her? She is a Renaissance woman. She, it seems like she's involved in everything. Uh, she did like, you know, sports every season. She comes prepared. She comes in like this cool outfit for everything. She'll go above and beyond. You know, she was a like a a student, and she's volunteering, and she's you know very like well liked by everyone, and in shape, and a good person, and et cetera. Like, kind of has like everything going on. So, for those of you listening at home, she is describing herself. She has got an outfit for every occasion. She's in fantastic physical shape. She's always exercising. She's always doing a million things. She treats everyone around her like goddamn gold. People love the shit out of her. Um, and she's just ambitious and goal-driven and out there and extroverted and fabulous and wonderful. And I love her to absolute pieces. And so that is an example of you not owning your own stuff because you don't see, well, maybe you do. But when, you, when you pr you're projecting your own best qualities onto the other person and you're seeing them in another person, so that's shadow material for you, right? Even though mm -hmm. it's good. So like I've got, for instance, let's say Sarah is a hypothetical patient. So let's say I have this hypothetical patient has a father problem. Uh, her dad doesn't pay attention to her, doesn't give her the love that she needs. And so she comes into my office and lays into me and just treats me like, like, how could you say this? And you arrogant bastard and all these things. And I haven't really done, I mean, maybe I did, but I don't think I did. And then she always forgives me and the session goes on. So this so is the dynamic with you and your, with you and your patient. <laughs> Me and a hypothetical patient, right? A hypothetical patient, got it. Hypothetical patient. So what's happening there is that she's projecting her anger at her father upon me, probably. And what I am called is a safe object. We love that term in the therapy world. And so I am a safe object because she can be as mad at me as she wants, and I'm not going to treat her like crap. I'm going to give her unconditional positive regard, or we'd love to use that, that phrase in, in the therapy world. It's very popular. Uh, and uh, so what she can have is called a reparative experience. She can repair her relationship with her father by laying into me. And it's, it's an unconscious process. So part of her shadow is the disabused part of her personality is not only the difficult relationship she has with her father that she has yet to work out, but also her relationship with her own masculine. So usually for a woman, 
the father is emblematic of her own relationship with her masculine. And for a man, his mother, his feminine, not always, but often. Okay. And so if, if you don't have a good relationship with your opposite, with your masculine or your feminine, you are uh, fractured and you, 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 you can't use those tools because the feminine and the masculine have different tools. Like the masculine, in my opinion, is much more direct. So like the sun, it kind of burns through things and kind of crashes through the front door. And that's really necessary sometimes. But sometimes if you crash through the front door, you just end up destroying the house and that's no good. And the feminine is more like moonlight. It's more serendipitous. It's just as powerful. It just does things differently, right? And so if you don't have access to that tool or that mentality or that framework, you will suffer in life because you will only do things. It's like the old adage, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Mm -hmm. If you are cut off from some part of your personality, especially from your masculine or your feminine, you will only have a hammer. You need the hammer and mm -hmm. the screwdriver and you need the saw and on and on and on and on and on, right? So it's imperative that people find out what their shout, what the, whatever's Un, Carl Jung said that the secret of mental health is tapping into your unconscious or into your shadow material, really, and bringing that to the surface. That's the point. That's what therapy is all about. That's all it is. That's a big thing, though. <laughs> it is. It's a big thing. You work with a lot of alcoholics. I do. And so people that struggle with addiction, um, and you work with them individually in your private practice, and you also work with them in outpatient I used, used to. to. Yeah, I am in private practice now. I might go back just to do groups because I really like to do groups. As soon as COVID clears up, I'm going to start doing groups. I think probably there and probably I'm going to probably form a men's group of some kind. That's kind of my, my future, I think, is in groups and public speaking, not in individual therapy. Yeah, I can, I can see that. Uh, and also kind of interesting, too, you're talking about part of your shadow is around connection with others. And mm -hmm. here you are saying, oh, give me, give me a freaking group. Yeah. One one-on-one -on -one isn't enough. You want to hear something interesting though? Yeah. This is actually really interesting. So there's this a philosopher, a Jungian philosopher, uh, von Franz, and she talked about the types, you know, like the Myers-Briggs types. But she talks about the, the Myers-Briggs, for, for those of you who know, Myers-Briggs is the thinking, feeling, sensation, intuition, judging, perceiving, and all that stuff. It's based on Jungian typology. The problem with Myers-Briggs is that it's too precise to be accurate. It's like they, they break it down to little science, which is ridiculous because it's typo personality typology is not an objective science. It's just a, it's a, it's kind of a guess. It's kind of a, well, and the cool thing about the Jungian typology wheels, it's more interested in your weakest function, not your strongest. So Myers-Briggs preoccupies itself with the strength. Like if you are an extroverted feeling type, that means you're really good at connecting with people. That's part of it anyway. Or if you're an introverted thinking type, that means you're pretty quiet and contemplative. If you're a sensation type, that means you know, you you're like for instance, an engineer might be a sensation type because they're they're preoccupied with things, actual measurements, stuff. You know, an extroverted sensation type would might build a thing, whereas an introverted sensation type might think about how to build a thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right? They're very preoccupied with measurements and stuff. But the opposite of whatever your strength is, is your greatest weakness and hence also your shadow. So for me, I'm an introverted thinking type, which means that my weakest function is extroverted feeling. But the cool thing that she was saying is that introverts tend to have a very uncluttered view of extroverted activity. So when they really step into their extroversion, they do actually a really, really, really good job because that's not their realm. And so there's something mm -hmm. clean and pure about it. Whereas an extrovert will do a, will oftentimes when they meditate, will have a much more intense experience than your average introvert. Because for an introvert, their internal world is already cluttered. It's like, a, it's like, it's like your closet. So there's a, there's a certain purity to the extrovert who sits down and meditates and can really have these really intense visions because there's nothing 
in the way. It's sort of new territory. And so when I step into my extroverted function, it's pretty cool. I feel really, really comfortable when I get there. <laughs> but it takes a lot of energy for me to maintain that, even though it's, I think I do a pretty good job. It's like, whew, afterwards, I'm just like, oh my God, I need to go lie down and, you know, just, just, just decompress, you know, so. Yeah. So you're, you're able to be an observer. You're not always in like the extroverted noise. You know, Jung said that for an extrovert, the, whatever is meaningful is primarily in the outside physical realm. The thing, the car that you drive. So an extrovert might name their car. <laughs> uh-huh. I don't name, I don't give a shit about my car. It gets me to where I want to go. I don't think about it. It's just an object. It's a, it's a thing. I hate things, right? An extrovert might, might put more energy into the clothes they wear. But for an introvert, it's the, the things that have primary meaning are within. I think for me, ideas, inner experiences are, are, more, are more important than outer experiences. But that does, though, is that makes that world kind of cluttered because all of my baggage is in there, right? All my ideas and my stuff. That's where I spend most of my time. It's almost like everything's like all the, there's dirt on the floor there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, when I see something meaningful in the outside world, there's no doubt that what I'm looking at is meaningful because I'm not confusing it with some sort of one of my own weird projections because I don't really, I didn't care about it to begin with. The, the veneer of all of my bullshit is not spread all over everything because I don't care about it. I don't spend time looking at it. I don't think about it so I can be more objective about it. It's like if I was in front of an audience of people, I don't think I would project as much upon them like, oh, they think this or, oh, I have to appear this way or that way. And and that person in the audience is wearing such and such. And what's the temperature like in this room? I just don't think I would be as preoccupied with all that bullshit. I would just be like, okay, I have one job here and that's to deliver my message to these human beings and to connect with them. That's that's why I'm here. Um, and so like for me, I can't meditate for shit. And like, I just try to meditate and it's like, I've walked into like a, a closet f- that's more wrecked than yours. It's like, like it's like <laughs> so difficult. But put me on stage in front of a bunch of people, and my mind completely clears. It's like the clouds clear and the sun comes out. Hmm. Totally different. How has being an introvert helped you be a therapist? <sighs> well, I think being an, intro- an introvert probably helps you with empathy. I don't want to say extroverts can't be empathic, though that's not fair but i can definitely feel other people's experiences like i can i can feel it the way you feel hot like a hot shower i can feel whether or not someone's angry or sad or what i can literally feel what they feel and i mean literally in the real term literal i literally feeling what they're feeling and i really think i am it's it's so visceral and um i don't know it also helps me separate because i realize that their internal world is not my internal world Mm. and i think an extrovert sometimes gets that confused because they like I, I know the difference between like where my world starts and theirs and like and I, I wonder if an extrovert sometimes doesn't know that because they're not as familiar with that realm. It it can also hurt because you're you're not as attuned to some basic stuff about their lives. Like you you might not put as much primary importance on the fact that they just moved cities or that they uh, are wearing something different that day or their hair is in a different thing or something doesn't look quite the same you might miss that as an as an introvert i don't know it's a good question i'll have to think about that some more i think the primary way it helps me is that i think my clients have the sense that they're that we're stepping into a world together like Mm -hmm. hey welcome into my little zone let's be in this together you and me let's step into this whatever this is the the sense that we're stepping into a world together is one of the most amazing ways to connect with people and that's like that's a really special thing um, so I'm, I'm curious, kind of like going back to your younger years, 
that wasn't always the case, it sounds like, that you were able to be able to step into these like really connected worlds with other people. No. Well, close friends I would. Close friends yeah. you would. Yeah, but I, I didn't know that I was doing that. So this is something that you've you've had forever? Yeah, but I didn't know that it was something that I just thought it was reality. I just didn't realize that it was a phenomenon. Like I just thought, oh, that's just the way life is. But then I realized that not everybody does that. Well, I also assumed I also assumed that people didn't like me because I was I did I was so off socially that I just assumed that if someone didn't like me, that that was normal. Hmm. Uh, and so I didn't really. I just had no. I just didn't put any thought into my behavior and my relationships and why they were the way they were. I just was like, well, this is the way reality is. You know, I was very used to stepping into new communities and becoming, you know, wildly reviled and sort of like. Ugh, don't hang out with that guy. It was so common that I didn't, I didn't really, I kind of looked at people who got along as friends and hung out in groups as sort of like a mystery, like, oh, that's, I wonder what that's about, but just sort of wasn't surprised or depressed or saddened in any way when I would be, you know, summarily sort of locked out of those relationships. I just thought it was normal. Um, I'm not being a self-pity thing here. I'm just saying mm -hmm. it was like, I didn't actually ask the question, Ben, maybe you can actually be friends with those people instead of being such an idiot um, in, you know, until much later in life. What do you wish that you knew back then that you know now? Uh, I wish that I knew that I had a lot more control over the outcomes of my relationships than I realized and that I was not fated to simply be an outcast, that I could have actually had lots of friends and had lots of good social experiences much younger. I just yeah, I had no, I had just no social consciousness whatsoever. It was more, it was not even an extrovert introverted thing. It had nothing to do with that. It was just, just no social training at all. Like I knew English. <laughs> I knew, I knew English. I knew how to dress. I knew how to do my homework. I knew how to eat. That was about it. I could read. <laughs> yeah. So there's been, a, there's been a big, there's been a big transformation. Yeah. And so to go back to a harken back to our earlier conversation, you know, when I, when I left Berkeley after that relationship failed, I went to work in Marin County and kind of met a whole new group of people, surprisingly sympathetic people. I was also a little bit more socially advanced by that point, I kind of fell in with this new crowd. And I, one guy, one thing led to another, this one guy, he, I was a chess player and he wanted to learn how to play chess. And he said, look, if you teach me how to play chess and beat my dad at chess, I will train you at the gym. And I'm like, okay. Um, and so we did that. What a deal. Yeah, what a deal, right? And it was kind of interesting because when I moved to Moran, I, like, I went and played with these people at a cafe. And I was pretty good at chess at then because I, I would teach it. And I, was, I knew how to play chess. That's one thing I knew how to do. And so I met people through that. But I didn't really know that part of my attraction to chess was actually the fact that I got to talk to people and meet people. And there was a certain, there was certain social etiquette around chess. Right. And I didn't even know that. I just knew that I liked being around it. I just didn't understand. I didn't understand that part of the medicine I was getting from chess was just being able to fucking talk to people in a civil way that worked. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I fell with this guy and then he said, Hey, there's this MMA school. It's mixed martial arts school opening up in, in downtown. Why don't you go check it out with me? I'm like, no, I don't want to go. It's stupid. <laughs> well, it's not stupid. You're coming. And I'm like, I don't want to come. And it was the first time I ever had a friend who was like, you're doing this and this is how it's going to go. I'm like, okay. And <laughs> so I went and I walked into that fucking place and put on a, a kimono, which is the big sort of that big, heavy sort of pajama looking thing that they wear in judo. And I quit my gym the next day and never looked back. And it was amazing. It was amazing. It was like, it was the best thing. I would, it was the first time, I think I started when I was maybe 29, 30. And it was the first time in my life where I actually looked forward to getting up in the morning. Hmm. Because before that, 
I had always just, it's always been, oh, one day I'll be a famous writer, or one day I'll be a wealthy person, or one day I'll meet a really great girl, or one day I'll this and this and this. And this. I lived in the future. And for the first time in my life, I lived for the present. For the first time in my life, I was excited to go to bed and get up the next day and go to jujitsu because jujitsu is amazing. And uh, that was a life changer. I don't think, I don't feel like I lived before jujitsu. I was not, I was wow. not, I was not, no, life was not jack shit before jujitsu. For me, it's the beginning and end of everything. It doesn't have to be that way for everybody else, but that's, that's, that's how it is for me. You know, not as much as now because I've got more going on, but, um, but it's still, it's pretty special. So what clicked that day for you entering the jujitsu gym and putting on the kimono? I have no idea. It was just awesome. I guess I liked movement. I think I, I've got a theory, actually. I don't know if this is a true theory, but I, I always thought that jujitsu for me, because it's wrestling, right, was an outlet for anger and stuff. But actually, I think that isn't true. Um, I had a revelation about a year and a half ago where I remembered playing. I, my, my childhood was unpleasant for reasons illustrated before. I was just not a happy human. And one of my happy moments as a child was wrestling with my brother, especially like in the sand. I don't know what it was or when he would tickle me or when we would have physical contact. That was like, I, 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 in retrospect, one of my favorite things to do. And I didn't get to do it very often. We didn't get along much, which is nobody's fault, just the way it is, you know, brothers. And so when I wrestle with people, I have this visceral joy. It's almost like, it's amazing. It's like a, I don't know how to describe it. It's like, I feel whole. I feel present. I feel at peace. I feel, um, I feel good. I feel loved. I feel just relaxed and okay. And like everything is fine for, for a few minutes. It's nice. Mm -hmm. And I never actually experienced that before as a human being. I mean, I had, I mean, I was a food addict and I still am. I was really, really overweight. So for me, the only other outlet in the world was food and chess a little bit. The only thing that has matched my love of eating has been jujitsu on this in this lifetime uh, thus far so, um, mm. so i do it a lot because i got to mm -hmm. so it's kind of interesting we get into this so thinking about martial arts women women are are at the gym too right or is it predominantly yeah, yeah, men about, or about 15 percent are women 15 yeah i'd say about when i think about jujitsu i think about mass a little bit more like masculinity <laughs> fighting Mm -hmm. masculine side of things. So yeah. I'm wondering about like what you, how you think like you tapped into your masculinity doing jujitsu and what that means for you. Um, well, there's this thing called red knighting. I forget where it's, I think it comes from an old uh, medieval myth of like the, I forget which myth it is, but where children are basically initiated into adulthood. And in this country, we don't have initiations for men or women. And for men specifically, violence is one way to initiate. Do you have initiation? So that's one way to, to, to grow up. It grows you. You know, like in jujitsu, when you get a new belt, you do something called wearing the gauntlet where you literally take off your top gi and, they, and you walk between like rows and rows of people. They whip you pretty hard with their belts, which is, it's a little juvenile, but it's, jujitsu is, is that difficult. I mean, you're constantly on the edge of getting your arm broken and you're, you're really, you're really testing yourself and getting tested. And also everybody's personalities come out on the mat. You, if you're an asshole on the mat, you will get hurt. Your personality will change or you will stop doing jujitsu. You will, you can see people's personalities change in jujitsu. It's remarkable. I know about five or six guys that I started out with as a white belt and every single one of us has changed dramatically since we were white belts, not just because we're older. So tell me, tell me about that transformation. And also, were you, 
Were you 100 pounds heavier when you started? I was 240 when I started. The lightest I've been is 180, but I had lost a good 20 or 30 pounds prior to starting jiu-jitsu. So I don't really know exactly um, what the numbers are, but it's around 100. And I also put on a lot of muscle. So it's hard to really gauge that. What was your question again? Like how how did I improve? Or how, how did you transform as a person through jujitsu? Well, I mean, I had social interactions that I would never have otherwise. You know, like you because you get in each other's faces. Like you accidentally hurt people, they get mad at you. You have to resolve that in real time. People say, you know, horrible shit to you. Like you know, you like a, the one guy called me. You know, what you looking at? You fucking Jew, and I'm not even Jewish. And I, I had to call him out. And he was a higher belt than me. That was kind of scary because a higher belt can, you know, punish you for calling him out. Like it, it can actually happen. It was a lot of real intense social dynamics that I had not been exposed to because I was such a recluse. So I, I met a lot of people, saw a lot of new types of social interactions, and had real visceral present experiences that I had not otherwise had before. And also just testing your fears. It's because sometimes jujitsu is pretty fucking scary. You know, like you're you're getting hurt all the time. Mm. And getting beat up will grow a person, especially men. I think it's more of a male masculine thing. How do you understand that? How do I understand what? Men growing from being hurt or from being kind of pushing themselves to the edge. Because the nature of the masculine is sunlight, which smashes through things. And if it can't do its job, it's deficient. And if your primary energy source is the masculine and you can't do what the masculine needs to do, you're in trouble. That's why. And jujitsu is very much about, I mean, even though it is the gentle art, it's still very aggressive, intense, pretty violent sport. And you have to really hold your own in a lot of ways. It's not just you have to, you know focus on your health. You have to assert yourself socially. You can't let people disrespect you in jiu-jitsu if you're a higher belt. It's a very, it's, um, there's a lot of hierarchy uh, mm-hmm. in jiu-jitsu. There's a lot of aspects of jiu-jitsu that lend itself to bolstering the masculine agenda, whether that's good or bad. It just is there. What have you seen in working with people that are uh, suffering with addiction? What have you seen in their growth in coming into themselves and overcoming obstacles. What what has been some some journeys or some themes? Uh, the analogy that I use is that if you have a tree and you're feeding it uh, gasoline, <laughs> mm-hmm. especially on the weekends, it's going to wilt and it's not going to do so good. And let's say you're, it doesn't get appropriate light. So if you start giving it water, you you knock a couple of houses down, it gets more light, and suddenly the tree starts to grow into its natural form, what it was always supposed to be. And the most exciting thing about working in addiction is watching people transform without your help, really, because they're just they're they're doing the work of not putting that toxic shit into their system, watching their their bodies change, watching their psyches grow, watching them come in, their eyes are clear, the lights are on, the lights start to come on, and they're just there, everything good things just start to come out of the sky for them. It's just incredible. It's magical. So a lot of the times in when you work in addiction, I don't do a lot of like deep stuff in the beginning. It's just like I, I'm very goal-oriented and very structured and very solution-focused because all I want them to do is not use their drug of choice. That's it. That's the goal. I tell them, you've got one job. What's your job? My job is not to use. That's it. But what about my my relationship and my this and my that? And I can't stop, you know, I can't stop uh, sl- uh, missing sleep. And it's like, I don't care about any of that. I want you not to use your substance because everything else will follow. And once they stabilize and they start to grow, then we start working on the deeper stuff. That's how, that's my basic formula for working with addiction. It's, it's amazing to watch. It's so amazing to watch. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm hearing you um, and I'm seeing that you're 
fascinated by it and it's amazing and there's all these positive words and I know firsthand that it's not easy to transform in that way to stop drinking stop using how how have you become someone who's been able to have the ability to get through to people in order for them to change and stop using how do you have this kind of empathy for people who are who are using and and also maybe are difficult for other people to be in relationships with or maybe other therapists like myself that I don't I don't work on that issue. There's four pillars. There's, there's structure, accountability, community, and faith. So you have to have a structured life. You have to have accountability. So that's why going to AA meetings is really good. If you get like, you know, what's called a commitment where you have to, you know, you're the person who brings the cookies or you have to greet people at the door. Those are really good. Keeping all appointments with your doctor, you know, uh, showing up to work on time, keeping commitments with your friends, that's accountability, remaining accountable. There's more structure because you're you're staying accountable. So they're kind of going mm-hmm. into and you also increase community. So in my experience, community is the thing that saves everybody's ass at the end of the day. Like you relapse, something horrible happens to you. It's not your therapist, it's your friends. It's the people around you who, who hold you up. You know, you, they also say that you're kind of like your personality or your, your success in life is sort of the summation of your five closest friends. I think that's very true. So you need to surround yourself with healthy, like-minded humans. Um, and you have to have faith that that's going to work. That's what the faith in the process. You have to have faith that that is true, that your bad ideas about how you're going to stay sober are not good. <laughs> mm-hmm. You have to have faith that the instructions that you're given are going to help, that I tell you XYZ, the AA people tell you XYZ, or whatever structure you pick to stay sober tells you XYZ, you do that. And you put you park your stupid ideas at the door because that's going to lead you to relapse. And you have faith that those instructions are good. It's like mm-hmm. cooking. You know, may, you may not understand how to cook, but you put all the you follow the instructions, and you'll get dinner. That's not my. It's that came from um, one of my patients. He's a super genius. So that mm. is that helpful? Does that answer your question? Yeah, I was curious about that, and I was also curious about like what it is in you that allows you to work so well with people with addiction. Well, I mean, I I struggle with my own addiction to food. I think um, you know I'm a binge eater, and uh, so I understand how people think, uh, you know, rationalizing and relapse and how dis- how difficult it is on a day-to-day basis. Also, I-, I think there's just something much more present and vibrant about people in addiction that just draws me to them. There's something inherently lopsided about people who are addicts often because they're trying to compensate for something within them that's not working. And mm-hmm. I've always felt like I was one of those people that was like overcompensating for all of my foibles and deficiencies as a human. And I, I feel that kinship with people in addiction that it's like we're really lopsided. We're really trying hard to work on ourselves and we're just, we went down the wrong path a few times. People with addiction, people with addiction can be really fun. They can, very fun because they're also putting all that energy into their substance. And when they stop using their substance, suddenly that energy is going to, it's going to go somewhere. Um, and, it, and it usually goes into something creative or they just become more passionate and alive. There's just so much energy in those people. It's unbelievable. There's a spiritual journey that happens, you know, because really when you drink your your or your use, you're having an artificial spiritual experience where you kind of feel, you know, even numbness is a is a spiritual state because you're not heavy being affected by the thing that's causing you pain. You've managed to detach yourself from it. And if you can do that consciously, that can be healthy sometimes. And then the question becomes, if you don't have your your drug of choice, your substance of choice, uh, or your activity of choice, because you know activities like sex and gambling and, and whatnot can also be um, shopping, can be an addiction. Anything can be an addiction. If you have to funnel that into something healthy, you are going to seek a spiritual 
position in that new hobby, whatever it is. For me, jujitsu is a replacement for food. So part of the reason I put so much energy into jujitsu is because I'm seeking my spiritual, like I seek spiritual healing through food, but when I'm, but my quest for spiritual healing comes from my lopsided personality. And so if I don't have my substance, I'm going to do it with something else. Tell me about the lopsided personality stuff. What does it mean to be lopsided? Well, I've been talking about it the whole hour, you know, like when I was socially deficient, that's lopsided. I'm not well, I was not well-rounded, right? I had So no, for other people, what what could be, what are other people's lopsidedness like? Uh, someone might have really, really low self-confidence. Um, somebody might be horribly narcissistic where they're lopsided because they're overconfident. Somebody could be trying to please everyone, a pleaser, right? Because they... Mm -hmm. they don't feel like they can be loved, so they have to go seek it and make sure that everybody loves them all the time, everywhere. <laughs> it's usually some sort of faulty core belief, like I am not worthy, or I am not good enough, or I am a bad person, or I am the best person, or I am I I'm not worthy of love, or whatever it is. Right? Lopsidedness is when a, when there's just way too much of your personality that's in shadow, just way, way, way too much. And you could argue that pretty much everybody's lopsided. I guess I'm making this up as I go along, but lopsided people are usually really, really, really bright human beings who shine very, very brightly, and their darkness also shines very, very brightly. Mm, that's brilliant. I mean, all these comedians you know, that are getting canceled, they shine very, very brightly in a very dark way. You know, why do you think they're comedians? What does it take to, to want to get up in front of a bunch of people, expose your whole life, your whole personality to the collective and risk ridicule so that you can tell a bunch of jokes and talk about your trauma and the trauma of the world? Think about what that takes psychologically to do. What kind of darkness must they hold? A lot. And that's why all these comedians, Louis C.K., you know, Aziz Ansari, Bill Cosby, uh, Richard Pryor, uh, you know, he... He was, you know, a crack addict. They deal with so many demons, and some of them worse than others. I think Bill Cosby is probably the most extreme case of all of them. He's, he really, he, I don't know what happened to that man. Just like, ugh. you know, he's arguably, in my opinion, one of the most brilliant of them all. I used to listen to him religiously as a child, actually, because he was kind of mm -hmm. like one of my father figures. Mm -hmm. I have like actually hours of Bill Cosby material memorized, almost verbatim, when I would listen to him over and over and over again as a kid. And uh, I just don't know what happened to that man. I mean, he he became a sociopath. I just, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. How does someone know and discover what their shadow side is? Well, whatever makes you uncomfortable. One of my biggest fears is is approaching strangers, especially young women in public and saying, hi, I'm so-and-so. That's one of my biggest fears in the world. And that is an arrow that points to my extroverted feeling, right? Because it's the most extreme example of extroverted feeling functions to walk up to anybody in the street and just start talking to them. Just boom. That's a hard thing for me. So it, whatever you're uncomfortable with basically is an arrow pointing you towards a direction of what you need to work on. It's not the thing necessarily that you need to work on, right? But it's an arrow pointing in that direction. Right. So what have you done with that challenge or the, that those fears? Well, here I am talking to you. <laughs> I, I mean, jujitsu is definitely that. It's a growth thing. My own therapy, doing my own podcast, which I do. Yes, um, you are. And it's fantastic. It's called Look, Just Tell Me What to Do. It's available on iTunes. I should start doing them again soon. Uh, I mean, dating is something that I, I haven't really been doing it lately, but it's definitely a challenge for me. <sighs> I don't know. Whatever I fucking can. <laughs> yeah, you're doing a lot of different things. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that there, there's something where it's like, people can't, this is not, unfortunately, this is not a video thing, but you know, you're someone who is successful. You have this great career. You have all these creative projects. You you have your amazing podcast, which I've listened to every single episode, at least once. Um, wow. You're, you're a writer, you're a great friend and you're good looking and you're in shape and you have these hobbies and blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. So you have all these qualities and it's still hard to be a person sometimes. It's it's hard to date sometimes. And you're still like moving forward. You're still having this desire to grow and become an even better person. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I'm that's what I'm hearing. That it's there's hard stuff and mm-hmm. there's a continued storyline. Yeah, I'm against rapid improvement. So I've been slowly improving myself for years. You know, all the stuff you listed was very generous of you. Thank you. Uh, But all of that was just a lot of fucking work, man. Years of it, you know, years and years and years of work. And I think because I had such a difficult time when I was younger, I started really working on myself religiously in my, you know, mid 20s, I'd say. And I've just never stopped. And I will never stop. You know, Seymour, my old therapist, he was 96 years old. And he said, you know, Ben, if I could find, I would walk clear across the state of California if I could find someone who could tell me something that was wrong with my personality. Hmm. Of course, he was, I could tell him plenty of things probably, but I don't know. So So there's something about like seeking what's in the dark. Yeah, basically. That's the only way to grow in this world. There's no other way through. That is it. That is the secret. But that's not an easy secret. It's not an easy thing to do. And it's not always, even if you are have balls of steel and you can go out and meet 100 women in a day, you're not necessarily going to change. You have to find ways to, to grow yourself. It's not simple. It is not simple. Most right. people stay within their comfort zones and don't know it. People are always talking about, go outside of your comfort zone. It's like, you don't even know what your fucking comfort zone is. You don't actually, like if you, people talk about that, but when they really get to the thing that really makes them uncomfortable, they don't, they run like hell. When they really find it, it's unspeakable. They can't even talk. It's so scary. It's just like, what I'm saying is that, like, you know, the, the story of like all those St. George and the dragon, you know, in, in, in mythology, when the, the slaying the dragon is a sign of becoming a grown up, is growing up, you know, becoming an individual. And I, I think that, personally that the dragon probably it's a complicated story but in part it must represent the, sh- the the complexity and the danger of the shadow and encountering the shadow and that you to grow up you have to really do an amazing thing you have to slay a dragon that's no joke hmm. you know um so any people that tritely throw around oh stretch go outside of your comfort zone and step into step into the discomfort lean into the discomfort are, are mostly assholes because they don't really they themselves do not do that mm-hmm. right like, oh, really? Really? Well, well, go talk to your sister, the one you haven't talked to in 15 years. Why would I want to do that? She's horrible. Well, <laughs> that's, the, that's the point, right? That's the thing. So yeah, shadow work is no joke. Jung said that the therapy does not begin until the shadow begins to emerge. And he's right. How, how would you say someone could take their first step to identify what's in their shadow? I would say make a list of all the things that you're uncomfortable with, all the things in life that you really would never want to do or deal with ever. Get a piece of paper and a pen and fill it up. And then what would step two be? Writing about or talking about each one of those things and looking for commonalities between those those things and looking for themes between those items. And then what would that do? What does that do to someone? Well, that you can create things that you're action items, goals, things that you're actually going to do in lieu of what you've seen and try to go out in the world and do those things. Not easy. Mm-hmm. Right. Not easy. You know, right. Not easy. So as therapists, we are 
wounded and trying to heal. Yeah. So that's kind of an interesting thing too. Yeah. Well, we're, you know, the wounded healer, the myth of the wounded healer, you know, the idea is the wounded healer cannot heal himself, but in trying to heal himself, he learns to heal others. Um, you will grow if you investigate your darkness. You won't become, you know, Jesus Christ or the Buddha, but you'll you grow. Won't? And the people around bad. you will, yeah. But the people around you will grow because they're just being around you. If you put if you put two people in a room, the one who's more healed automatically begins to heal the other one. And no therapist can heal a patient beyond his or her own capacity for their own self-realization and healing. So you can't, a therapist, a patient cannot excel beyond wherever you're at. And I've actually discharged patients because I'm like, I can't help you anymore. You've grown a lot. You're now need to investigate an area that I'm not equipped in. Go forth. Mm -hmm. You know, there's certain areas that I'm just not that I'm just like, I got to work with people with eating disorders. I mean, I'll work with them, but I won't, that won't be the focus. Because mm -hmm. I'm just not equipped. It's too, I have too much darkness in that area. I will not help the person. I'll probably make them worse. So the therapist has to be healed. To a degree. To a degree. To a degree. Mm -hmm. have, it's all about having consciousness, right? You have to be, you have to have a certain, like healing and consciousness, you can interchange those two terms, right? Healing is, consciousness is healing, mm -hmm. right? The more aware and the more awake you are, the more you can heal others. The more others will stand in your light and have an experience of, of consciousness. You know, I remember going on this date once with a woman who was way more conscious than me. She was a year to the date. Remember the ghost ship fire in Oakland? Yes. And she was, she had lost her fiance in that fire and gone out, was going, I was on the first date that she'd gone out in since he died. And that was a year. Oh, wow. Like, what the fuck? Why are you, what? And she talked about the community that she was a part of and how her heart grew because there was so much, she had 24 seven support. She was part of those, one of those really neat communities in Berkeley, you know, with like, they kind of live communally. Mm -hmm. And she just described how her heart grew in a way. And even though she still grieved for her fiance, there was so much more of her. Like when a child falls down and stubs his toe, it's, it's a huge thing. But when an adult does it, it's not because there's just more of us. It doesn't, and there was like, she had, she was on another level and I could feel mm -hmm. it. I cannot date this person. She is light years ahead of me. I could just feel it. In on, I, and I actually, by talking to her, like my consciousness, I could feel my consciousness kind of ratcheting up just by speaking to her. Like mm -hmm. we could have talked about the phone book and she would, I would have gotten something out of it. That's <laughs> and I was like, I can't mm -hmm. date this person. You know, she needs, she, you know, I just can't. And, but the, the, the knowledge that she came by, she came by in a really painful way. Like talk about being smoked upon God's anvil. I mean, she got it hard. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's not knowledge that I would wish on anybody. Mm. That's some wisdom. Oof. Gives me shudders thinking about yeah. it. I think we're, we're finishing up. I'm curious, like if there's anything else like you'd want to share or like, I don't know if there's some, like some pieces that like you'd want to get into or there's something that you'd like to share with people listening who might have a hard time getting started with their personal growth work, or it's, they want to kind of take things to the next level of their life. Kind of like um, what to do. Go see a therapist. <laughs> go, find a good um, go spend time with people you love. Uh, go spend time with people you don't like. <laughs> Figure out why you don't like them. Mm -hmm. You know, oftentimes we don't like people because they're reflective of qualities in ourselves that we can't stand. Record your dreams. Like when you wake up in the morning, right? Keep a dream journal. Do that. Really important. What's important about that? Everything. <laughs> dreams are messages from the unconscious. So if the whole, if our work therapeutically is connect with our unconscious, dreams are messages from that zone. And to even to write them down, even if you don't know what they mean, it's it's valuable work to do. Do it. Hmm. Do it. Do it. Do it. Okay. Don't, don't be stupid. Write your dreams down. All right. All of you do that. Um, also, don't listen to me. 
my therapist Seymour always said, beware of those who know. And because I just said, go write your dreams down. It's very, very important. You tell me to fuck off and not write your dreams down. <laughs> it's key as a matter of fact, because those who say do not know and those who know do not say according to the, the Tao Te Ching, which is mm -hmm. true, which is a paradox because the Tao Te Ching is telling you that but that's another story. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so uh, I think those are my, those, those are my closing comments. That's all I, that's all I have to say. I'm, I'm glad that the, uh, that we, we got to talk. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Okay. It's All a right. deal. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Ben. Our chat made me think a little bit deeper about the ways that I still need to grow. Maybe some of the dragons that I never slayed in my childhood. So I have something to journal about a little later. And definitely go check out Ben's podcast, Look, Comma, just tell me what to do. It's based on mental health and it talks about addiction, relationships, dating, basically how to do things better than you're doing them now. And it's available on iTunes and most other podcast plat platforms. Ben's style is super direct, entertaining, and irreverent. He gives no fucks and has no filter. Also, if you're on the market for a great therapist, especially if you love directness, you can give Ben a call on his therapy business line at 415-497-1908 or go check out his website at benjaminrusick.com. That's B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N r-u-s-s-a-c-k.com. And thanks so much for listening. This has been really awesome. And feel free to follow me on Instagram at relationship podcast. And if you found this to be insightful and enjoy the show, please feel free to leave a review on Apple podcast or share this with someone you think can benefit from hearing it. And this is Natalie Bloom, excited to continue the conversation with you and remembering that through awareness comes connection. I hope you had a great time listening. Again, just a friendly reminder that the podcast is for informational purposes only. Relationship University is not intended to be a substitute for psychological, psychiatric, or medical advice, or diagnosis and treatment, or actual psychotherapy with a therapist or psychologist. If you're desiring or needing mental health support, please seek the advice of your medical provider or other qualified mental health professionals. If you think this may be a mental health emergency, please call your doctor or 911 immediately or go to your local emergency room. Life can be challenging sometimes and everyone goes through tough things. And I hope you're seeking professional support from your own personal therapist if that's something that you think would be beneficial to your life. I appreciate your time to listen to this and take care. Thank you.